at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Cheering Podcast. This week, I'm here with my co-host, Bee. Hi, Bee. Hello. And two special guests to chat about all things related to science communication. So today, we're joined by Vari Aitken, who's an ethics fellow in the Cheering's Public Policy Programme. Vari's research focuses on social and ethical dimensions of AI and data science, as she has a particular interest in public engagement in this area. Also with us today is the Cheering's resident science writer, James Lloyd. James previously worked for BBC Science Focus magazine, and a recent project of his has been working on our A is for Algorithm campaign, which is all about creating a glossary of data science and AI terms for non-specialists. James and Vari, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi, nice to be here. here. Welcome. But before we go into any details whatsoever, maybe we should tell our listeners what is this thing called science communication and why is it important? Why are we talking about it today? Um, So, James, if you want to tell us a little bit... Well, I guess science communication is pretty broad. I would say it's communicating scientific ideas or research or breakthroughs. And we tend to be talking about communicating to non-specialists, so people who don't have an expertise necessarily. Um, It can take loads of different forms, like articles, books, radio programs, TV, podcasts, exhibitions. Um, I say it's kind of like a bridge between the research world and the public. But I think it can also be a bridge between different areas of research. I think it's important to remember that non-specialists can include scientists as well. So, for instance, uh, an evolutionary biologist isn't necessarily going to be an expert in cosmology or robotics or climate science, for instance. So it's a pretty broad field. But, yeah, communicating science to non-specialists is what it is in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah, and I I would absolutely agree with that. And I think... um yeah, very much agree with what James said. It's a very, very broad field. Um, I suppose my, ideally for me, I, I like to think that science communication is about um, informing or leading to conversations with the public and the public being uh, very diverse and, and can mean di- different groups. And as James said, that can be members of the public in different areas of science, um, but also very broadly, the wider public. Um, my background is in, in public engagement with science and technology. And often a distinction is made between public engagement as being like two-way flows of information, having dialogue with the public to inform science and technology. And science communication is often seen as more kind of one-way flow of information, kind of putting information about science into the public domain. But actually, I think more kind of science communication projects I've been involved in, I find that that distinction is, is incredibly blurry. And actually, really good science communication is often about facilitating those conversations and putting information into the public domain to then get feedback from the public and inform those conversations and have dialogue with the public about science and technology. Yeah, I suppose one of my questions is kind of, you know, why does science require communication in the first place? What is it specifically about science that 
you know, we need to have these kind of bridges of communication between specialists, non-specialists, you know, potentially, yeah. Mari, potentially you could take this question. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of reasons. Um, in a very, yeah, a very basic level, um, a lot of the research, uh, particularly research in kind of universities, in research institutions, a lot of it is funded by the public. So a lot of the work that we are doing is funded by research councils, UKRI, it's funded by the public. Um, and so we have a kind of, uh, I guess, something of a kind of moral obligation to feed back to the public about how this money has been spent, what's coming out of it. When we're talking about data science and AI as well, a lot of this research is also only possible because we have access to public data or data from members of the public, even when that's anonymous or, or de-identified. It's, in many cases, data that comes from members of the public or relates to members of the public's lives. So it's really important that we're engaging the public in conversations about how and why that data is used and ensuring that it is only used in ways which are publicly acceptable, which kind of reflect public values and interests. Um, and I think finally, uh, in engaging the public or having communication with the public around science is also about making science better. It's really an opportunity to kind of refine uh, research questions, um, to to reflect different views and interests within that and to ensure that they align with kind of public values or societal expectations around how science proceeds. Yeah, I think there are loads of reasons why science needs communicators um, more than maybe some other topics, some other areas of life. I mean... Like science can be really, really complex. <laughs> it's carried out by specialists who have, you know, have had years and years of training. So lots of concepts and ideas that are really difficult for people that don't have that training to get their heads around. And a lot of science deals with things that we're not actually able to see, like you know, subatomic particles, dark matter, algorithms, cells, bacteria. So it can feel quite abstract, I think, and disconnected from reality. It's almost going beyond. We see the effects of these things, obviously, but we're not actually, yeah, it's not part of day-to-day -day life quite often. So I think science communicators are needed to help make the invisible things more visible and to kind of act as translators as well. So science is very mathematical, but I don't think everyone has the training or the inclination to think in those kind of mathematical terms. So science communicators can help to translate into other kinds of language, you know, whether that's visual or, or literary or a bit more poetic. And also science communication gives the opportunity for like actual physical experiences and that can really help people to get their heads around things like going to a museum, seeing something in the flesh or going to a live show or a demonstration. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of things going on that, you know, there's a lot of jargon as well obviously in science, so you do need some kind of translation for that quite often as well. So it, it, it begs the question now, who can be a science communicator? Is it like the just the scientists that can be science communicators or just non-scientists that get to be science communicators? I think anyone could be a science communicator, really. I mean, it's anyone who's helping to communicate science to non-specialists. So, I mean, it can be the researchers who are doing the science themselves. It can be, um, there are science communication professionals that, you know, there are courses and qualifications in this stuff. I say anyone can be. I, I would caveat that it's about passing on accurate information to others. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of misinformation out there and there are people that are passing on misinformation. So I say they're probably like doing the opposite of science communication in a way. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. I think anybody can be, or anybody that's kind of interested in science or working in science. Um, and if we think about science communication as being that kind of mediator between science and the public, um, so it can be, it can have varying levels of expertise. Um, and it, and it's great if this is um, scientists and researchers communicating about their own research, but there are also science communication professionals who are that kind of facilitator or that mediator, getting the information into public domain and facilitating those conversations. 
I'd like to think that everybody working in science, um, or particularly data science and AI, could get involved in science communication. Everybody can do it. Um, that doesn't mean that everybody needs to be performing stand-up comedy or, you know, having a YouTube channel or like doing all of those kinds of things, which probably most people don't want to do. Um, but everybody can do some science communication. That might be, you know, writing a lay summary of your research. Um, that might be you know, contributing to blogs or. Uh, you know, writing in newspapers or presenting in kind of lay audiences, so to to uh, non-academic audiences or seminars or conferences or wh whatever that might be. It can be it can be all kinds of things, and so I think when we're thinking about trying to encourage more people to get involved in science communication, we need to kind of diversify the expectations or diversify the understandings of of what that means um, to make it accessible. So that it doesn't feel that this is only for uh, researchers or scientists who really enjoy performing, for example. It, it, there, are, there are many different ways for scientists and researchers to get involved in science communication and, and to think about just new ways of presenting research and, and engaging different audiences with the research. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose it shouldn't feel like a kind of us and them situation. You know, it can be a kind of collaborative process. And I mean, you've talked about stand-up comedy. Are you able to go into a bit more detail about kind of public engagement that you've done, Vari. I know you've done something recently, um, which I was slightly involved in kind of communicating. Yeah, yeah. so most recently I was uh, at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe um, performing something called the Cabaret Dangerous Ideas. Um, Cabaret Dangerous Ideas, or Cody, as we normally refer to it, um, is a is, is organised at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe um, and it aims to kind of get um, academic researchers kind of out of the comfort zones and into the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, it's facilitated by a stand-up comedian so it's an opportunity to, to talk about your research to really a, a public audience um, and it it's very light-hearted. It aims to be quite provocative, so to put forward kind of short, punchy ideas that provoke response and provoke debate. Um, and then the discussion is facilitated by the stand-up comedian. Um, so it's a real blend of, of comedy and spoken word um, and, and presenting research. I've been doing that for about, I think, about eight years now, um, each year in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Um, it's very addictive. So if I'm doing that, it's kind of led into lots of other um, opportunities. Um, and so, yeah, from there, I've, I've begun to do bits of stand-up comedy. So I've, I've performed in, in Bright Club, which is stand-up comedy for academics, or stand-up comedy night, which is, uh, yeah, academics performing comedy. Um, but I've also then performed in some kind of new act comedy nights in, in comedy clubs, in, uh, mostly in Edinburgh. Um, and yeah, it's, it's very addictive when <laughs> you start doing it. Um, but it's a really, it's a really fun way of kind of getting, uh, yeah, getting research out to different audiences, and particularly to audiences who aren't necessarily expecting to hear about science or expecting to hear about technical uh, yeah, technical things, um, but it, and in that environment where people are kind of just up for having a bit of a laugh and up for kind of being challenged and, and being provoked a bit, you can you can really generate some really fascinating discussions through that process. I fully I fully get you on the addictive. I am myself guilty of being addicted to stand up as well at this point. <laughs> um, but we're talking about good ways of communicating, right? But there's also, um, James mentioned earlier something about miscommunication, which would be the opposite. Um, so my, my question now is like, is what is the difference between a, a good science communication and bad science communication? And, um, what can we do to spot as well the bad science communication if there's a way that we can do that? 
I suppose, like, well, when it comes to, like, getting the facts right, I mean, that's that's a tricky one because, obviously, there's so much misinformation out there. But I think it's, you know, what we what we do at the Turing, obviously, and, and a lot of science communicators, they are reporting on, like, legit science. So it's quite easy for us to get our facts right because we're just reporting on the research. Um, but the actual kind of, like, tips for how to communicate, I would say um, things like... I think a good science communicator is someone who can put themselves in the shoes of who they're communicating to. Um, there's a concept from Buddhism. I'm definitely not an expert in Buddhism at all, but there's a concept called beginner's mind. And I really like that because it's about imagining that you're coming to something for the first time. So you you kind of drop all your expectations. <clears> and that's quite a useful um, idea for science communication because it's about empathizing with the person you're communicating to and building the communication from the ground up. So really going from the basics that you might take for granted if you're already familiar with the topic, but really go from those basics and kind of building from there. I think another thing that um, good science communicators do is to bring in the human side of science into the narrative. So I think so much of the conversation focuses on like, scientific achievements and discoveries. And I think people can almost forget sometimes that scientists are actually real life human beings. Um, so I think it really helps bring in the scientists' own stories, you know, what motivates them, what inspires them, what keeps them awake at night, and also stories about those who are directly affected by the science. So whether that's, you know, someone benefiting from a new experimental treatment for depression or a farmer who's growing a new drought-resistant crop. Um, if you can bring in those human stories, that really helps. And people love stories. I mean, we've been telling stories for as long as humans have been on the planet. So um, anyone who's able, yeah, if you, if you can weave together a narrative, it's, it's not really just about presenting the information, you know, as you'd see on like Wikipedia, for example. If you can create a story that, that takes people on a journey, hopefully an emotional journey, um, then I think that can really help to, to get across um, get across your message. I really like the point, James, that you're saying about kind of making scientists feel more human, like thinking <laughs> about the process through which, you know, science is conducted and how 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 the kind of findings arise. Um, and I think also one thing that I think is really important in terms of what makes a good science communicator is like a genuine interest in your audience. So not just, um, yeah, not not just being there to present kind of facts or, you know, tell, tell members of the public kind of how things are or what we presume that they should know, but actually, you know, coming to it as a conversation, being interested in what the audience thinks, what they have to say, what their questions are, and being able to adapt what you're communicating to reflect their interests, um, to reflect areas of concern that might arise for the conversation or to respond to questions um, and being interested in what the audience's perspective on on the topic is. Um, that's easy to do when it, when it, or not easy to do, but it's easier to do in a kind of an event where you're speaking to a live audience. But it's also possible to, to do when you're, you know, when you're writing a, a blog or when you're writing something, you need to really think about who the audience is and trying to understand what their interests might be, what their perspective might be, um, and, and engage with that rather than to pre presuming that what we find interesting about the topic is also what um, members of the public might find interesting about the topic. Yeah, and I suppose one thing that I'm really interested in, James, is obviously you worked for BBC Science Focus magazine before you came to the Cheering, and a lot of your work at the Cheering is, you know, working with researchers to turn their research outputs into something that could then, you know, be put into an impact story or, I don't know, you know, it's turned into a blog. You know, how do you work with the researchers? You know, how do you start working researchers to turn their kind of maybe technical, you know, paper into something that is a kind of piece of science communication that non-specialists can you know, actually digest and understand i suppose the main thing is yeah putting yourself in the shoes of someone who doesn't know anything about this research and what would they be interested in 
like they're not going to be interested in the technicalities of the research. They're not going to be interested in how the algorithm works. Not not in a kind of deep way, anyway. Not well. Some people might be, um, but obviously, like you're thinking, you've got to go to think of the the audience and and what the audience as a whole would, as a majority, would want. Um, so yeah, like thinking about, I suppose, yeah, like I was saying, the real world impacts, what how it's going to impact their life. So often there's a um, there's an emphasis in, in science communication trying to diversify and reach you know diverse audiences trying to get to maybe the wider public and it's a real challenge um, and certainly the kind of events that I've been involved in in terms of I, mean, I perform shows at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe I perform, perform shows in kind of science festivals um, and as always like the, yeah, the continual challenge is how do we get to new audiences? How do we reach beyond the audiences who are likely to come to say a science festival or to an event which is like explicitly about science or about AI? Um, and it's a real challenge. And I think one way of doing that is we want to get to people, we want to engage people who are who are not already thinking about AI or already thinking about data science. Um, and one way to do that is to, to think about the... So, so many of the kinds of AI systems that we're working with or we might be talking about are systems that are being used in areas um, such as, say, uh, well, identifying individuals who might be um, at risk or might be vulnerable who might, uh, in terms of social services, access to social services, or prioritising individuals for access to public sector services say, around housing or, or education. So we need to talk to people who are interested in housing and education and social services. And I think a really valuable way of doing that is if we want to engage people in conversations around the ways that AI is used or the ways that data science is used in these areas, they might not come to an event which is advertised about AI or data science, but they might come to an event which is advertised about how decisions made about how you accessed housing, how decisions made about who is prioritised in terms of social, social services or, or social care. Um, and through those discussions, we talk about the role of AI and data science within those services or, or the ways that they're used to inform decision making in those services. But the focus doesn't need to be centrally about AI or data science to, to get people interested in those discussions. Um, and I think that's really important to think about the, the routes that people have into these events and, and to not presume that because, because we're so passionate about AI and data science that everybody else necessarily is. Uh, we need to think about the yeah what is it about the topic that we want to discuss, which is going to spark people's interest and how can we bring them into those conversations. I think that's a, a really good um point and thank you both for for sharing. I was I was thinking that the hardest I had to prepare for a presentation was actually we had a workshop at Christmas markets so the audience was literally anybody. It was we had children and we had elderly and how do you entertain everyone for a while while talking about data science and AI. So I think that's far more difficult to think about than if I have to present a poster at a conference. It's two completely different levels of <laughs> of research uh, presentation. But I think I'll use this. I'll use my own segue into asking what co uh, what communications works are we actually doing at the Turing currently? What is it that the Turing has been um, doing? How are we reaching out? And I guess I'll I'll lead over to uh, James. Recently, I've been working on a, a glossary, which is um, it's a campaign we called A is for Algorithm. It started out as a Twitter campaign that we ran um, back in February, March, I think. And the idea was to do A to Z of data science and AI. So each day would be um, going through the alphabet over 26 days. So we ran that as a Twitter campaign. I think it was quite well received. So we turned that into a like a, a glossary. So that's going to sit on the website. Um, so that's essentially yeah, aimed at non-specialists trying to crystallize the concepts such as deep learning, neural networks. 
Um, that was a tricky task. It's given me definitely appreciation for people who write dictionaries. Um, so it's a lot more difficult than I expected to write a definition, to keep it clear and accessible without compromising on the accuracy and without also introducing a lot of jargon into the definition itself. Because to define the terms, it almost felt like you needed to use jargon. It's, it's almost like a kind of inception of jar nested jargon. Um, so it's difficult to get away from that. But I think we're happy with what we've got now. So we're going to publish that soon. We've got a blog on the website um, where we post about new research. Um, we have opinion pieces on there as well, uh, perspectives from researchers. We've got an impact stories page, which are like the, the case studies where we, those I tend to write, which are like longer articles, like more like feature length articles about, about specific research projects. We do a lot of events. Um, and we've, I think, I believe we have a lot more public engagement on the horizon that we're going to start doing a lot more of this. So yeah, watch this space. But there's a lot of stuff going on, which is, which is good. I'm interested in kind of your, both your experiences, Vari and James, with, I mean, yeah, B, you can contribute to this as well, where, you know, where you've seen science communication done particularly well. Um, so, yeah, we've talked a bit about kind of, you know, things that maybe you should avoid with science communication, but it's always good to kind of hold up examples where it's been done well and, and potentially achieve what it's set out to achieve, which is also probably open to debate. Um, so if you've got any examples. I've already mentioned the Cabaret Dangerous Ideas as something I've been involved in at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Um, but it's also something that I really enjoy as an audience member. Um, and what I think is really really great about the Cabaret Dangerous Ideas um, is the diversity of topics that it covers. So um, originally with Cabaret Dangerous Ideas began, it was a one-hour show with one speaker and one topic for the full hour. Um, but it's become now the format has changed so that most often there'll be free speakers with three completely different topics within an hour. So if somebody, uh, like when I when I performed my show, my topic was around uh, smart devices and people's relationships with smart devices and around data and AI. But the other speakers were speaking about climate change um, and networking and, and kind of, uh, yeah, public speaking and networking. So you get three completely different topics. Um, the topics could be anything from some of them around like ballet dancing, um, art history, neuroscience. It could be, you know, completely different topics. And what's really brilliant about that is that with each speaker promoting their show via their networks, um, you're going to get very diverse audiences within that. So I might promote my show via my network and that might generate interest in people who are kind of already thinking about AI and already thinking about data science. But other speakers might bring people who are interested in ballet dancing, art history, neuroscience, climate change, really different topics. That then generates a really unique set of conversations where you have people who were coming excited to hear about climate change, but then happened to be in a conversation about data science and AI or about ballet dancing or whatever it is. Um, and that leads to very different kinds of questions and very different kind of reflections and responses. Um, and that's really exciting. Um, it's exciting as an audience member to have the chance to really, um, yeah, be, be provoked to think about new ideas. Another thing that's been really great about the Cabaret Dangerous Ideas is although it started at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, um, it's being uh, it's moving to different venues and different it's being performed in different kind of yeah venues and, and opportunities so for example there's also been shows being performed at kind of local um, community colleges um, and, and seeking to take these shows to different audiences rather than expecting people to come to where the show is instead of taking the show to where there might be people who it's valuable to have these conversations with uh, and I think that's a really really positive example of, of kind of proactively engaging diverse audiences with topics of research. I wrote down a couple of books that um, I really enjoyed when I read them um, a few years ago. One was called The Man Who Couldn't Stop, which is by David Adam. Um, 
And that's a, it's a really good example of how a personal story can bring a topic to life. Um, in this case, it's uh, David Adams um, suffers with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and he, he uses his own experiences to explore like, what's going on in the brain of those who suffer from it. Um, and what he does really well is he, he talks about his own experiences and uses that to, to guide the story, but he also makes it relevant to everyone. So he talks about how OCD is all about unsettling intrusive thoughts that come out of nowhere and how everyone gets them to some degree. And it's also really, really brilliantly written. Um, I wrote down the opening sentence of the book, which is an Ethiopian schoolgirl called Bira once ate a wall of her house. <laughs> I mean, what, when you read that, you just, yeah, you're not going to stop reading it, are you? Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, the other one I wrote down is another, um, it's a bit of a deep topic again, but it, it was a book that really stayed, stayed with me. It's called With the End in Mind. It's by Catherine Mannix. Um, she's a palliative care physician. And she talks about her own experiences of caring for uh, dying patients um, to talk about how we should approach death and what happens if you die, why we should talk about it. Um, but I'm making it sound really morbid and gloomy, but it's not at all. <laughs> One of the biggest ones that grew drastically over the last decade is YouTube. You have a lot of people actually communicating science really well on YouTube and in a way that um, helps all audiences understand. So I do, I'm not saying that people should do YouTube, but there's so many videos that actually explain things, really complicated topics in a much simpler way. And it's like, you know, the equivalent of going to Wikipedia and reading, but you have images and someone presenting it to you, um, in a quicker way. What about you, Joe? I always quite like kind of exhibitions. So kind of, you know, artistic installations, exhibitions, particularly interactive exhibitions that kind of, I suppose they're engaging you in, in the way of, you know, you're kind of part of the exhibition. So you're, you know, you're able to, I don't know, take part in a game or, you know, there's something that's yeah on the wall that's interactive. Um, I went to a good one recently, which was, was all about kind of, yeah, technology, I suppose, and the impact of technology on our lives. Um, and yeah, it had this enormous map on the wall, which they've kind of reconfigured. So it's a map of the world, but they'd reconfigured it as kind of the world as the internet and all the different countries were supposed to represent different parts of the internet and actually it was a very visual way of showing something that is really difficult to comprehend it's really difficult to imagine you kind of know all these you know the bits of the internet that you interact with um but it was um yeah it was like the size of a wall so it was absolutely enormous and i spent yeah half an hour just looking at all these different bits and i was like where's this bit or where does this fit into you know how this artist is visualized and obviously it's an artist's interpretation of it um and it's also okay, I think, in those spaces to disagree with how someone's represented something. Um, and I suppose that's kind of, yeah, comedy, you know, some, that's kind of part of it. It's a kind of changing process. You know, no two shows are ever going to be the same, are they? Um, and I suppose I'm always interested, like, what do you want out of a show, Vari, when you perform? What, what is that kind of, do you have an idea of an outcome or is it you're really open to <laughs> anything? Yeah, I mean, what's so exciting about it is the unpredictability. Like, I, I love that. I really, that it's nerve wracking just before you go on and you don't know how it's <laughs> going to go. But it's also the thing that makes it really worthwhile. So it's different. Like, sometimes I've, I've done stand up comedy where, you know, I've had, you do your set, you have six minutes, seven minutes, whatever it is, you're on the stage for that time, you get you get the response, like the immediate response from the audience. You kind of know how it's going from the way that they respond and kind of you know, the atmosphere and how it goes. Um, 
and then there's the other kinds of shows like Cabaret Dangerous Idea shows where you do your set. So in, in Cody, I talk for five or six minutes um, and then there'll be like 15 or 20 minutes of discussion. And so then you get responses, you get questions, you get a lot of um, yeah, interaction with the audience. And that is that's brilliant. Like that that's that's what really like that that's what I love. That 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 interaction, that excitement. And you you genuinely have no idea what people are gonna say. Um but what in terms of what would make like what would be a success for me or what I want from that process, I want to be challenged. Like I want to come away from that show thinking like, wow, I didn't I never thought about that before. Or somebody's asked me a question that is like, yeah, I need to think about that. Or you know, and that through those processes. And certainly over the years that I've done this, it's really shaped the direction of my research. And it's kind of it's forced me to kind of refine research questions or reconsider areas that you now I might spend years thinking thinking about something. I talk to somebody and, and somebody in an audience of a show brings up a perspective that I haven't considered. And that and that's brilliant. Like that that's what for me, that's what it's all about. To be challenged, to be provoked, to have an opportunity to to see the topics of my research through somebody else's eyes, to think about somebody else's perspective on that. Um, and then to take that back to my research and think, okay, how do we incorporate that? How do we address that? How do we assure that those views, those concerns, those interests are reflected within the science that we're talking about? Um, yeah. So for me, that's that's yeah, that's what it's all about for me. Yeah, I think one of the most rewarding things about doing this kind of stuff is um, being able to kind of um, ignite people's curiosity as well. And that's something that's like an instant reward when when something become someone someone becomes curious about something. I think that's yeah, curiosity is kind of like a really powerful thing. Like you can lead people down, you know, new career paths that give them new interests, new hobbies, introduce them to new people. And obviously, like science communication to kids as well. Like if you if you can ignite a curiosity at that age, it can spark like a lifelong passion in this stuff. So I think um, I think that's what yeah, that's one of the best things about it, I'd say. Yeah, I suppose also it gives people the opportunity to question, you know, if they're reading something in the news and they've kind of maybe heard about it from a kind of more accessible route. So, so they've gone to an event and, you know, algorithms have been broached as a topic. And then, you know, they may be seeing all this stuff that happened last summer with the kind of A-level algorithm fiasco, however you want to call it. You know, if that then encourages them to go and find out more and question actually, you know, what am I reading? Is that actually what an algorithm is? Then I think that's a really powerful thing that we should all be striving for um question everything <laughs> yeah i mean you you want to like empower people basically with the knowledge don't you that will help hopefully help them to you know live healthier happier lives that's the ultimate aim of all this stuff is to yeah but it's yeah it's difficult when there is so much misinformation out there obviously and that's a challenge oh, i was gonna say i think the last year has shown how much misinformation can influence um negatively um the the lives of people you know they're uh, just every day yeah yeah and I, yeah i suppose it's you know been the not the first time but you know it's been science has been at the forefront of people's minds you know in a very public and personal way for the last year and a half and actually you know when you've got so many different avenues of information it really does show that communicating the facts not just well, but in a way that's accessible is really important, particularly at a point where everything's very overwhelming and stressful and giving people the tools that they need to feel better or feel better informed, I think is really important. And I think a lot of, so we spoke about the, yeah, the dangers of misinformation and there's been a lot of misinformation over the past year, but there's also, I think, so trying to be optimistic, <laughs> um, there's been a lot of interest in, 
in science, but not just in the kind of outcomes of science, but also in the scientific processes. So there's been a lot of attention now to like, um, yeah, the processes of drug discovery and the processes of scientific research, particularly around COVID, um, and and the A level, the off-call algorithm um, controversy around that. Again, put attention to the process through which decisions are made and why and how algorithms are being used. That to me is 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 really exciting and it and it gives me a lot of optimism that, that people might become more interested in you know not just what science produces um, and not just kind of attention to like where there's like great success stories or positive outcomes or scandals or negative outcomes but actually understanding more the process through which this works um and the, and the the role of humans within that that these are human processes and and where it goes wrong it's it's uh, it's not a uh, mutant algorithm, as it was described, but it, it, the the unfairness that might come out of that is because of human decision making and and the role of biases within that, um, and that's what we need people to understand, like the the human processes and and the opportunities to get involved in and engage within that. And when I can just in relation to that point, I think that's where a lot of science communication and kind of STEM, science, technology, engineering, maths outreach activity has often focused on um, kind of technical skills or technical understandings. And there's been quite a lot of emphasis on on STEM education to kind of equip the next generation to go into careers in AI or go into careers in data science. Um, and what I think is really important alongside that is that this isn't just about technical skills and, and technical knowledge, but also understanding the kind of social and ethical side of things, equipping the next generation, not just to go in and build AI systems or to go into careers in data science and AI, but also equipping them to kind of scrutinize that and to really think about the role that these these systems are having in their lives, the impacts are having on society, the impacts are having on, on individuals. Um, and if they go into AI careers, data science careers, to go into those careers with an ethical mindset to equip them to really make the most of these technologies and maximize the benefit, minimize the harms um, for society. Um, but also to equip them to make informed decisions, good informed decisions about the ways they interact with these services and systems in their own lives um, and, and to inform kind of ethical practice around this. Basically, we want them to 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 advance AI, but not too much that we're going to be overtaken by robots. It's just a, that sweet balance between the two. <laughs> a lot of interest in STEM grew over the past um, couple of years because of how science has been changing everyone's lives and allowing us to have a more normal life if that's what we can call it uh, right now <laughs> yeah no definitely and in terms of thinking about the yeah the, the role of science and, and the benefits it brings for, for society and that's that's really important um and and yeah like like what you what you were saying about developing AI, but not letting kind of AI take over the world or robots take over the world. I mean, there's also a really important role for science communication there, and in, in kind of um, countering the, like sensationalist ideas about what AI is, because that is um, often, I think, often, yeah, when people hear about AI or see AI in in movies, for example, in the movies, it's always AI is you know killer robots or um, robots with kind of emotional intelligence that can fall in love and, and that sort of thing. Um, there's not a lot of movies about kind of AI as systems for efficiently processing large volumes of data. I don't think it's as interesting. I was going to say. <laughs> Catchy title for that one might be hard to come by. <laughs> But that's really important because those are the kinds of those are the uses of AI which right now are really significantly impacting people's lives and are really significantly impacting society. Um, and so we need to move 
the narrative and move the discussion away from you know killer robots and people falling in love with with smart devices to actually well AI is shaping your life right now um, and how do people feel about that and and how what are the kind of limits to acceptability around how we use it right now in in those ways and it comes back to I think James was saying earlier about you know science often being invisible and that's sort of that's 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 one reason why it really is really important to talk about AI and data science because it is mostly invisible. It's mostly being used in, or we're interacting with it continuously without necessarily knowing that we're interacting with it. Um, and yes, I think that invisibility is a really important reason to have conversations about this and to, to yeah, raise awareness, to make it visible. So with one of the Turing's goals of being informing a public conversation around AI, um, I think it's really important to think about what that conversation looks like. Um, mm. and, and for science communication to be both about um, yeah, communicating kind of work that's happening around AI and data science, but also seeking to facilitate more of those conversations and, and, and yeah, creating more ways for members of the public to be involved in those conversations. So more kind of public deliberation, uh, more you know, active engagement involving really diverse groups of the public within discussions around the future role of AI and the future role of data science um, to inform future practices. Um, yeah, and really trying to reach out to to as diverse a public as possible. So thinking right across the UK and thinking about the different experiences, different perspectives, different groups that we need to have in these conversations to shape future practices around using data and using AI. I was going to ask if there's any opportunities for researchers that want to improve their science communication skills what can they do if are there um, workshops are there activities writing activities or even things like mm. fame lab which is a science communication competition that happens all over the uk yeah fame lab um is really good i think i don't know is it still going i think it i think it is yeah um that's i, I don't know much about it very you might know more than me but i would say like for the researchers who want to do more science communication I think it's just, um, yeah, taking advantage of any opportunities that come up. Like at the Turing, obviously, we've got a blog you can write for. We've got the podcast. We've got lots of, like, we've got events, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, taking advantage of opportunities, um, allowing yourself to be vulnerable, because I think it's, like, quite a scary thing to um, communicate research to the general public if you're not used to doing that. But I think, you know, that's okay. Like, it is, it is quite a difficult thing if you're, you know, if that's something that you haven't done much before. But giving it a go... If you're a researcher, yeah, thinking about what people are going to be interested in, how you can connect with people, how you can make your research relevant to people's everyday lives and how it's going to affect them. Um, and, yeah, if you're interested in writing, just read, just read loads and loads of books. Um, yeah, that's that would be my tips. Yeah, and I certainly agree with that in terms of just, like, going for it, every opportunity to practice. But I suppose going back to what I said before, like, every, everybody can be a science communicator, but not everybody needs to do all, all the things we've spoken about. So not everybody needs to... Uh, you don't need to, to do stand-up comedy to be a science communicator. You don't need to stand on a stage and perform to be a science communicator. And there are lots of different ways to do it. Um, but equally, there are opportunities. So if you want to get involved in science communication, there are kind of safe spaces to practice and to experiment. Um, so if comedy might be something you're interested in, Bright Club is a great example of that, where if you if you sign up to Bright Club, there is some training um, to help stand-up comedians to uh, help stand-up comedians to, <laughs> to help academics begin to think about how they might communicate through comedy. Um, and that doesn't mean that you need to be a comedian afterwards, it, but you will 
gain really valuable skills through that process in terms of communication and, and being able to make your points concisely and clearly. And that's valuable wherever you take that. That might help you with you know lecturing or it might help you with seminars or whatever, you, 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 whatever kind of communication you do. Things like FameLab as well. FameLab um, also provides some some training and workshops for, pe uh, for people entering FameLab. Um, and for students, three-minute thesis is another one, which is really good in terms of kind of coaching and, and, and training students to think about communication and, and communicating concisely and clearly. So I'd say that, that there are these kinds of opportunities which are like they're really safe spaces to experiment. Bright Club is a, is a safe space because uh, people coming to the show know that it's academics. They know you're not a stand-up comedian. So people are kind of there to support you and to they want you to do well. So it's a, it's a safe space to experiment. Um, but as B and I have both said, be careful because once you do it, you will be addicted and then <laughs> you will be back and you will be looking for scarier and scarier places to talk about your research. Do you want to add anything else, Joe? No, I think that kind of summarizes it. So thank you so much, James and Vari, for coming on the podcast today. It's been a very illuminating conversation and I hope that it encourages some scientists researchers that maybe were thinking of dabbling in the kind of world of science communication to take that first step um and for people to check out what the cheering's been doing because we've been doing really fantastic work not that i'm biased but i am biased um you know since i've started yeah we've had so many interesting initiatives so i really hope it encourages people to take a look and get involved oh well, thank you for coming guys it was a really good discussion <laughs> thank you so much if you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk. The Cheering Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstrew, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jam and Sun. You can check out his latest releases at germansun.bandcamp.com.